Well, this morning we are in Hebrews chapter 10. As we continue our exposition of Hebrews, we have come here. Our text is the first 18 verses of this chapter. Um, before I read it, though, I do want to tell you a little bit about, about this chapter. And one of the things it's done for me, uh, I've um, been probably in the book of Hebrews maybe about nine months or so. I've been preaching through it. But there was some prep time even before that. And probably for about the past year and a half or so, I think we're on here, past year and a half or so, when I've had opportunity to give, maybe give a testimony of some Scripture passages that have really stirred my heart or an opportunity to say, hey, where have you been encouraged? I found myself always coming back to three passages of Scripture, three verses that come right here from Hebrews 10. First one is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then in verse 14, for by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And verse 18, which says that where there's forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. These are three verses that they all say the same thing. They all focus their attention upon the finished, perfect, completed, sufficient work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's really the the main point of our text this morning. The single, sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Which is the title of my message this morning. It's the point of verse 10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Just a one-time sacrifice, we have been sanctified through Him. Verse 14, by one offering, He has perfected us for all time, those who are being sanctified. And verse 18, where there's forgiveness of sins, there's no longer any offering for sin because in that one offering we have forgiveness of sins. And I'll just say that these verses have stirred my heart more than any in the book of Hebrews because it speaks of the finished, completed work of Christ. There's nothing else that we can look to. There's nothing else that we can do. We can't add anything more. This is the Gospel. It's all done in Jesus. We've been sanctified, perfected, forgiven in Him once for all. It's a message we believe. It's a message we preached. We preach. I uh, had a, a reunion. My high school, 25th anniversary of our graduation. So if you do the math, you can figure out how old I am. Um, so we had our graduating class uh, be there. And I had an opportunity to talk with one guy who has really no context for church. Didn't grow up at church, but I, I knew him. And um, I said, you know what, I'm a pastor of a church. And was telling him some things and just said, you know what, I, I don't care what people's problems are, their answer is Jesus. And I said, that's my job, is to take people and their problems. And I can help in some areas, I can't help in others. But I can direct them to the one who can help. And that's Christ. And that's what this text is. It's the finished work of Christ. He's all. He's everything. He is he's our perfect one. He's a sufficient sacrifice. And I tell you what, this is so unlike any religion in the world. Every other religion in the world, you name it, and I'll tell you how, how, it, how it works, but, but you, you're, you're here and you've got to like do things for God and then God is happy for a little bit and then maybe you sin. You've got to do something else and God will be happy and do something else. But in Christianity, it's the only world religion in which one great happening brings salvation through the centuries and to the world. That's so unlike anything else. It's just one event took place 2,000 years ago 
that then extends to us today. And we don't need to look to anything else. We don't need to do anything else. We don't need to add anything else. None of the other world religions teach that. It's the slander of the scandal of the gospel, I guess. And in my own heart, I found comfort in these words. They epitomize the gospel, what it is. That my sins are completely done away with, completely helped with. And my aim for this message this morning is that you might sense the same blessing as you look to the sacrifice of Christ. As I read the text, I want for you to listen to for this theme of the single sufficient sacrifice of Christ. It's going to start off and show those sacrifices which weren't useful, weren't sufficient, were insufficient, and then it will get into this refrain about the sufficiency of Christ, referring to the Old Testament and showing how that is the case. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of Me to do Your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then He said, Behold, I have come to do Your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily and ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Is the best reading there. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put My laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. My first point as we look at the single sufficient sacrifice of Christ, is insufficient. We're talking about the Old Testament sacrifices, verses 1-4. through four. These Old Testament sacrifices didn't work. They were insufficient. Now, I hope you know what insufficient means. We had this past week uh, at our house, Andrew Krauss. I'm not sure exactly where he is. They're here, Andrew. And uh, I, I forget the reason, but Andrew was... Um, your hands were dirty for some reason, maybe out playing, I forget. And I, I kind of watched you wash your hands and you had a blister from mowing the lawn. So you had a band-aid on, on your lawn, thumb someplace, I remember, Andrew. And he took his band-aid off, put it down, washed, washed his hands, and then proceeded to put the band-aid back on. And I said, no, 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 wait a minute, Andrew. Let's, let's, you know what? I've got a new band-aid for you and maybe this will help. And so, so I said, well, let's make sure first it's dry. 
And so we waited for it a little bit for, to dry. And then I, I went into our, our cabinet where some Band-Aids are. And I pulled the Band-Aid out. And I said, okay, Andrew, is it dry now? And he said it was. And I started pulling it out. And lo and behold, it didn't know me. But our princess-loving little daughter had her princess Band-Aids in there. You couldn't tell on the outside. But as I stripped it up, there's a beautiful picture of a princess right there on that. And I said, Andrew... Um, will this work? Do you want a princess band-aid? And he just kind of stood there dumbfounded. <laughs> but being all boy, he said the correct thing. He said, no, that won't work. And said, so, you're exactly right. This band-aid is insufficient to solve your problem. And so we grabbed a sufficient band-aid to solve the problem. And uh, you're not wearing one today, Andrew, right? Wonderful. That's what insufficient means. It's not going to solve the problem. And here in verses 1 through four, we see these insufficient sacrifices which cannot solve the problem. They're identified here in verse 1 as a shadow. It's the law which really instructed these sacrifices be made called them a shadow. You think about a shadow, what is it? It's a two-dimensional dark object which somewhat represents the original. There's some resemblance, but sometimes it's not very good. A shadow is shifty. It lacks color. It lacks depth. It is fleeting, it's distortion in the shadow. And that's what the Old Testament sacrifices were. Oh, to be sure, that they represented the real thing, but they were distortions of the real thing. They lacked the color, they lacked the vividness, they lacked the depth of the sacrifice of Christ. And they were fleeting. And despite the numerous sacrifices that were offered year after year after year after year, they were never able to really accomplish ultimate forgiveness of sins. Because if they'd have been able to accomplish ultimate forgiveness of sins, they would have stopped being offered. In fact, that's the point of verse 2. Otherwise, they wouldn't have ceased to be offered. Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But their very continuance, year after year after year after year, was a testimony to their ineffectiveness. That they can never make perfect those who draw near. I think about um, the oil spill in the Gulf. It was April 20th of this year. That um, a disaster aboard the Deepwater Horizon offshore drilling rig. Some spillage of oil caused an explosion. Killed 11 people. Injured 17 others. And the result is the United States of America would experience, in coming months, we're experiencing now the worst environmental disaster in our history. And from that day, you all know about it, right? That the oil is spilling out into the Gulf, just even right now, even as we speak. Some estimates have placed the spill somewhere around 200 million gallons of oil. Though it's fuzzy, but it just keeps going and going and going. And since that day, almost three months ago, workers have sought to cap the spill. They've made repeated attempts to cap it, but to no avail. They've tried an oil siphoning tube. They've dropped containment domes over the site. I remember the time, remember they did the top kill? I'm not sure if you remember that. Um, and even yesterday, there was some news about how they, they took the cap off it now and they're trying to put a tighter cap on. And there's hope that maybe it's going to help today. And, and, and all the time they're drilling a secondary rig, I assume, to relieve the pressure so that they can, uh, a secondary hole so that it will be solved. Listen, none of these have worked. Oil is still spilling in the Gulf, causing a huge problem. But here's the point. The very fact that they're trying to fix the leak demonstrates there still is a problem. I mean, once it's capped, are they going to try to stop the leak? 
You don't, because it's capped, it's not leaking anymore. But the very fact that they're trying, their continued efforts demonstrate they haven't stopped the leak. And that's also exactly the same case with the Old Testament sacrifices. Try and try and try as they want. They're trying to deal with the effects of sin. But their continued sacrifice or constant testimony, they've never dealt with their sin fully. Verse 3, that's the point. In those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. You sacrifice, and you've got to remember sins, that there are sins, and they've got to be dealt with. And these sacrifices aren't, going to, aren't being dealt with. And so the oil spills in the gulf, it's the reminder that there's a problem. And so also with sins. The priests of the tabernacle continue to offer up sacrifices, a reminder that sin is still a problem. And then the truth comes in verse 4, shows the insufficiency of these sacrifices. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All human effort to take away sin through animal sacrifice was ultimately ineffective. Or as I said, it was insufficient. Now, something did happen in the sacrifices. You read in Leviticus over and over and over and over again that the sacrifices were offered in the offering of those sacrifices. The priest shall make atonement for him and it will be forgiven. And it says it again. He'll make atonement and it'll be forgiven. He'll make atonement and it'll be forgiven. He'll make atonement and it'll be forgiven. But there's something interesting there of what's lacking. No mention is made of removal of sins. It's only a covering of sin. The Hebrew word for atonement is kafir, which is another word for cover. And that's really what's taking place in the Old Covenant. Is that there would be a covering for sins and He would be forgiven. But... They were never taken away. It's impossible, as it says here in verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Animal sacrifices could cover sin, but they couldn't remove sins. And in this sense, animal sacrifices granted forgiveness much like we grant forgiveness to one another. Think about when someone sins against you and they ask your forgiveness and you say, I forgive you. What are you saying? You're not saying, I'm removing your sin from you. You're merely covering their sin. You're merely saying, alright, I forgive you. I'm going to let you go of that. I'm not going to remember that. It's your glory to do so. It's a man's glory to overlook a transgression. It's good to do that. But removing sin is another matter. It's something you can't do and I can't do it. But the glory of the Gospel is this, that Christ can do it. He's removed our sin. He's taken it away and it is gone. Right? You might think of it like this. Jesus has single-handedly plugged the oil leak and has cleaned all the beaches in the Gulf. That's what Christ has done. Because He's taken it away. He's taken all that sin away. He's taken all that oil away. And where? He's taken it upon Himself. Absorbed it in Himself upon the cross. That's the reality of the Gospel. In many ways, it's too good to be true. No one man can cap the, cap the oil leak and clean everything. It's taken billions of re- dollars of resources. But Christ did it. The Old Testament sacrifices were insufficient. Sacrifice of Christ, on the other hand, verses 5 through 10, was sufficient. Let me read it for you. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, see here's now explaining this text. This is from Psalm chapter 40. And he's going to explain it, verses 8 and 9. After saying about sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings, sacrifice for sins you have not desired, 
nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One of the things I love about the book of Hebrews is the way that he argues. He argues based upon the Jewish people he's writing to. Remember, his readers who he wrote to are those who have come out of Judaism and they've come into the church. Many have embraced Jesus as their Messiah, no turning back, all in. But others were kind of thinking about it or on the fence. And there are these other Jewish people out here who had seen Christianity, it's a cult, seen it as the wrong way. They were trying to persuade the Jewish people, say, hey, we've got all these sacrifices. Doesn't the Old Testament teach us to sacrifice? And you've just ditched it all? How is it you're so quickly now turning aside from what you have heard? How can that be? And the writer to the book of the Hebrews then goes back to the Scriptures and show how they themselves prophesy and teach that the sacrifices would cease with the ultimate sacrifice. For instance, let's look how he argues. Verse 5, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. The the people over here say, yes, God commanded a sacrifice to be offered, but here in Isaiah, or in Psalm chapter 40, it's plainly stated that God didn't delight in the sacrifice the Israelites were offering. It's amazing. And the same thing, though, comes in verse 6. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. God had no pleasure in the sacrifices that were offered. And Psalm 40 isn't the only place where this is mentioned. Multiple scriptures speak about how God ultimately didn't have desire in the sacrifices. Hosea 6.6, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Also Psalm 51, when David's dealing with his sin about how he can remove his sin with Bathsheba and trying to, trying to deal with that, he confesses his sin and says to God, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering." And then he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He got it exactly right. He says, it's not so much the external sacrifice that God likes, it's the, it's the internal attitude which led to those things. And David even saw that it's not the sacrifice ultimately that forgives the sin. It's the contrite heart that you look upon me in grace and kindness with. And there are a handful of other pastors as well that speak in the Old Testament of how God doesn't desire and delight in the sacrifices. And you might be saying, well, how can this be that God doesn't delight in the very things that He commands? He commands sacrifice on the one hand, and yet He says, I don't delight in them on the other. How how can that be? Well, there are really two answers to this question, and and first is a little bit like with our children. We want our children to obey, right? Parents, which parents want our children to obey? All hands should go up, okay? All at one, one moment. There are times, though, when they obey with a crummy attitude. Right? And you know what that is. They're obeying on the outside, but they're not obeying on the inside. Is that what we want? We know we don't want that. And if you as a parent tolerate that, well, at least they're obeying. You're missing it. You've got to get to the heart. As Ted Tripp says, shepherd the child's heart. Yes, they're doing the right thing outwardly, but no, they're not doing the right thing inwardly. So address their heart in the matter. Don't be satisfied with mere external obedience. And that's what some of the sacrifices of Israel were like. Many times in the life of Israel, they're going through the motions, offering up sacrifices, but really those who were offering up the sacrifices were really living in rebellion. And God wasn't pleased with those. Just as you're not pleased with your child 
It was obeying with a terrible attitude. Isaiah one thirteen, God says, Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. See, when you're sin, I can't stand that. You're, you're playing games with me. You're just offering up things like you're so religious and so devout, but you're wicked and rebellious. And I hate those sacrifices. Remove them from me. Isaiah 1 continues to speak about how he hates the new moon festival and the appointed feast. They become a burden to me and he's weary of bearing them is what he says. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, God says, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen because your hands are covered with blood. That's why the Old Covenant sacrifices were worthless because they're mingled with the sin of the Israelites oftentimes. But there's a second reason and it can also be illustrated with our children. When our children are young, we use diapers. And there's good reason we use diapers, right? But as they get older, do we want them to be wearing diapers? Nathan, you think your parents would like you wearing diapers? No, what about you, Rachel? You think your parents would love you going around in diapers? No, right? Diapers are for a time. For a time when they're small, when they're, when they're infants. And that's what sacrifices were like. There was a time for sacrifices, but ultimately they were destined to be done away with. Because God had a greater desire. He wanted the people to believe in the Messiah to whom the sacrifices pointed. It was the ultimate sacrifice. And when the Messiah came, the other sacrifices were done away with. Galatians 3.24 says, The laws become our tutor to lead us to Christ. In this sense, the sacrifices have been just teaching you to go to Christ. He's a sacrifice. In some regard, that's what Psalm 40 is really talking about. David's the original writer. And in the context of Psalm 40, you see that David's submissive to the Lord, seeking His help. He's not offering it out of a, a bad, wrong way. He's offering it with a good heart. But in David's words of offering up these sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, it's really prophesying of the Messiah. And so here you can even see that they describe the coming of Jesus. Verse 5, Therefore, when Jesus comes into the world, He says, the Messianic Psalm, Jesus agreed with this, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. That is, in the Incarnation, a body has been given to Me. Now, there's a textual issue here. The Old Testament doesn't exactly say you have a body you've prepared for Me, but it says you've cut My ear, basically you've opened My ear, basically you've kind of given Me obedience. The, the Greek translators of this, though, it may have been an idiom, Translated it this way, that you have prepared a body for me. So that's the Messiah. You can see Jesus coming in. And then in verse 7, Jesus says, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it's written to me, it's prophesied of me that I have come to do your will, O God. And there it is. When the Messiah would come, he would present an offering, not of bulls and goats before the Lord, rather, he'd come with his body. And the implication is his body would be the offering which he would offer up. You can see that in verse 10. Such was the Father's will. And that's what the author explains. He quotes the passage in Psalm 40 and then he says, okay, let's talk about this. Verses 8 and 9. You've not desired sacrifice. You've not taken desire in them even though they're offered according to the law. But then he said in verse 9, I've come to do your will. In other words, God delights in the, in the doing of his will not in the sacrifices that they were to be offered. And really two things happening here. 
God's undelight in the sacrifices, Messiah's delight in the Lord. And the conclusion then that the writer draws is this in verse 9. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. That is, He takes away the sacrifices to establish His will, which is our sanctification. And that's accomplished through the death of Christ. Verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Because fundamentally, it was Jesus coming to do the will of God and not His own will. And what was the will of God? The will of God was that He would be sacrificed for sins. Perhaps you remember the time when He was um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, not really looking forward to what was about to take place. He knew he was about to be laid out on a cross. And he was sweating drops of blood, pleading with his father, saying, Father, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. And they said, Nevertheless, what I will, but not what I will, but what you will. And God's will was that he would be crushed upon the tree. And it said, even in Isaiah 53, that God was pleased to crush him, to render himself as a sin offering for us. And so the conclusion is, verse 10, that we've been sanctified through that offering. And it's been once for all. It has been done. It is finished. It doesn't need to be repeated as the sacrifice of the old covenant were. I say, church family, let us rejoice in the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. Too often I fear that we can be just like the Jewish people who... Who, who sinned, yes, and then they thought, okay, I can make up for my sin by these sacrifices. Or they thought, I can make up these sins by my prayers, and how often do we do the same thing? We sin, and then we think, well, but you know what? I, I read my Bible this morning. Isn't that enough, God? And kind of like, we can think so easily that the righteous things we do can, can like help solve our sin problem. Like, I sinned, but, but I prayed. Or, or I sinned, Lord, but at least I attended church today. <laughs> like, church attendance does a lot for pardoning your sin. It doesn't. And I just say, too often we can fall into that error as well, tit for tatting, saying, I sinned, yes, but, uh, but I, I did this. Whatever righteous deed it is. I, I love somebody. I helped them across the street, right? That's always the example that's given. Or I did this, or I did that. If you do that, I will just simply ask you, are you sure you did enough? Are you sure you did enough? How long did you read the Bible today? 15 minutes? I don't know. That's enough. Maybe you need to read it 20. Maybe you need to read it 25. How long did you pray today? Five minutes? Are you sure that's enough? Maybe you need to read it 10. Well, I, but I, um, you know, I also came to church. Did you come to church every time? Have you ever missed a Sunday? You can just keep going. Say, are you sure you're enough? And you're going to run into problems. And I just say, don't look to your religious deeds. Look to Christ. The things of the Israelites, they were looking to the religious deeds rather than to Jesus. But He is our sufficient sacrifice. Alright, let's go on to our third point. First we saw the sacrifices were insufficient, verses 1-4. through four. The sacrifice of Christ was sufficient, verses 5-10. through 10. And now verses 11-14, through 14, the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient. Same word, same thought same meaning, same everything. So my second and third point are the same. Points two and three are the same because they're talking about the same thing. Now, this text, rather than pulling from Psalm 40, he pulls now from Psalm 110 and says the same thing. The Old Testament prophesies of a finish, a termination point. Every priest stands daily 
ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down. And there's the key. He sat down because He was done. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now his point here really comes by way of contrast. He's saying, let's look at the Old Testament, look at these sacrifices the priests were offering, and let's look at what Jesus did. And you can see the contrast there in verse 12. It starts with the word, but. The priests were in verse 11. The but Jesus is in verse 12 and 13. The first contrast comes in the number of priests. It simply says here, every priest. You could say all of the priests. In the Old Covenant, there were thousands of priests who handled the duties of the sacrifices. As you approach Jerusalem, you can discern who the priests were. Close to the temple, there are priests all over the place. Maybe walking through the villages and the town or the, the city streets there. But in the New Covenant, there's only one priest. Verse 12, but He. And that's a reference, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. In contrast to the many, we got one priest. The second contrast comes in the number of sacrifices. Here we see the priest, verse 11, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. What they did yesterday, they will do today. And what they did today, they will do again tomorrow. I often ask men who are working, I say, how's your job? How's your job this week? Any challenges? Was it slow? Was it busy? Any new projects coming up? How's your forecast look? Just that kind of thing. And, and if I would ask this to a priest in the Old Testament, I'd say, hey, how was your job this week? Oh, I had a, had a typical week. And I said, what did you do? Well, I offered up sacrifices. Oh, that's good. And he said, well, what's next week look like? Oh, I'll offer up sacrifices. And come to think of it, I, that, you know, that's the forecast from here on in, I guess. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to offer sacrifices. That's about all I do, and that's what I will do. I'm a priest. Right? And, and we have got sin, right? And so I'm going to offer all these sacrifices. But Jesus, on the other hand, what did he do? Verse 12. Offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Jesus didn't have to offer many, many sacrifices day after day. The one single sacrifice was sufficient. A third contrast, you might see, I didn't have this in the notes coming to me right now. You can see the futility of the effectiveness of the sacrifices. In verse 11, they can never take away sins. They're offering up, and that's the point of verses 1 through 4 that forms a contrast. They're insufficient. But Jesus, on the other hand, offered one sacrifice for sins. And the implication here is that it worked. It's done. Which is shown really by the fourth contrast here is the posture of the priests. It's the point of what he's pulling out from Psalm 110, this little word, sat. If you notice in verse 11, it speaks about every priest stands daily ministering. Points were made many, many times. I think it's a good point. There's no seat in the tabernacle. There was only the lampstand, the table, the showbread, and the altar of incense. There's no seat in there. The priest went in, went in, found no chair, no throne, no place of rest, and it was no accident. I think it symbolizes and demonstrates the priest's work is never done. There are always more sacrifices to be offered up. But Jesus, on the other hand, sat down at the right hand of God. Sitting is a picture of accomplishment. After preaching, 
my sermons, what do I do? I come down here and I sit down. And unbeknownst to you, this is what I do. I go, God, please use that feeble attempt of everything I tried to do. But I'm done, right? And then I instantly start thinking about Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25. <laughs> I do that. But when I sit down, I'm done. And that's what we do as well. You know, you know what it's like to have, be out there, work really hard all day? You come home. Men, maybe you know this from your work. You come home and there's that recliner just waiting for you. You come in and you you sit down exhausted and your work is finished. Hopefully, after you've helped your wife clean the dishes, get everything done, put the kids to bed, and then maybe by 10 o'clock you're ready to sit down. But sitting down is a is a picture that our work is done. And it's done in Jesus. That's what He did. His work is done. He's seated upon His throne. And there's no, there's no more work to be done. All He's done, He's just waiting around. And for this reason, this is my own little pet peeve, but I think His chair in heaven is really cushy and really soft. Because He's sitting there for a long, long time. As it says here in verse 13, He's waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. He's just sitting there waiting. Some sense for 2,000 years he's waiting. A very interesting passage in uh, Acts chapter 7, though he does stand once to receive Stephen into the kingdom. I think he stood probably in honor of the first martyr. And maybe he stands other times, but primarily his posture is one of sitting and waiting. And I, I do say this, if there was more work to be done in bringing people to himself, Jesus wouldn't be sitting around. He'd be doing the work. But His work is finished. And that's the point of verse 14. By one offering, Jesus Christ has perfected for all time those who are, as I said, being sanctified. Now this is an interesting verse we can spend a lot of time thinking about. On the one hand, it points to the finished work of Jesus. We who believe in Jesus have been perfected. That is, we're complete. Nothing more we can do for our salvation. And yet, look at this, we who are complete still see a work going on in our sanctification. The ongoing work of, of living righteous lives. Right? That's verse 14. That's the last part of it. Right? By one offering, He's perfected all time those who are being sanctified. Or as the NIV says very well, those who are being made holy. So those who are being made holy are, are perfected. Well, if we're being made holy, it means that there's some sense that we're not holy because that's talking about progressive sanctification. On the other hand, though, we are perfect. How is that? Well, because in sanctification, there's two sanctifications. One is positional and one is practical. Positionally, we are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Our sin is done away, gone with. Practically, God is helping us and refining us and purifying us to rid ourselves of sin, to walk more and more in obedience to Him. But here's the point also that the very ones who are perfected are the very ones who are experiencing in their life a continual sanctification. Now, it's not, don't fall into the error, it's not that, yeah, I'm being sanctified more and more and I will be perfected someday. Or, or look at all the good things I'm doing, therefore I'm going to be perfected. No, no, he says that by one offering, he perfects us for all times. And what's the sign of being perfected? Is that you're increasing in your sanctification from day to day. So I just say, if you aren't experiencing this in your soul, if you find yourself just continuing in sin and continuing to have less of a desire for God and going away, it may be that you're not perfected. 
Because a sign of perfection isn't a sign of increasing holiness and passion and sanctification for the Lord. It's not that you work for that, but it's the opposite. Those who are perfect, God creates a desire in us. So we can say in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but you are my strength and my heart and my portion forever. We progress in those things. And the perfection comes through the finished work of Christ. One offering. He's done it. Alright, let's move on to my last point this morning. We've seen the Old Covenant sacrifices were insufficient. The sacrifice of Christ were sufficient, verses 5-10. through 10. The sacrifice of Christ was sufficient, verses 11 and 14. And verse, verses 15 to 18, maybe you can guess my point this morning. The sacrifice of Christ was sufficient. Good job, and Nathan. Great job. Sufficient. I don't think I've ever had a sermon before where three of my points were exactly the same thing, but hopefully it'll like jar you and just say, hey, this text is all talking about the same thing. That's why I had to take all these verses all together. They all talk about the same thing. This time, he's not talking about Psalm 40. He's not talking about Psalm 110. He goes back to Jeremiah 31. But he does the same thing. You've got to understand what he's doing. He's going back into the Old Testament to explain that, um, that it teaches... That in the one sacrifice of Jesus, it's done for all time. You don't need these Old Testament sacrifices. Jeremiah 31. We already have come across Jeremiah 31. If you look back in chapter 8, verses 7 through 12, verse 8 through 12 is a straight quote, the longest quote in all the New Testament of an Old Testament passage, quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31, talking about the new covenant. And one thing also I love about the book of Hebrews is that. When, when you read some of these passages for the first time, you, you kind of read it and it, it gets lost on you. But then what he does is he, he begins to take the words apart and open them up and then you say, oh, you're right. I never saw it before, but now I see it. It's there. It's plain. It's obvious. Why didn't I see it before? Notice that's a lot different than, wow, I read that. I have no idea how you got that. That was pretty interesting, but I... No, he says, I'm going to show you the connection. It wasn't obvious at first, but it's going to be obvious now. He starts by setting the context in verse 15. He says, and, it's like a further explanation here, I'm going to show you how the, sufficiency, how the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. Here's just a, a small testimony again of how it's, it's men moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God as the Scriptures came down. So as Jeremiah wrote, yes, he put pen to ink. It was really the Holy Spirit who testified to us, saying, verse 16, This is the covenant that I make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws upon their heart and on their mind. I will write them. This verse is, is a great verse. I mean, it speaks about um, the great promise of the New Testament that, that God will transform us from the inside out. He's going to take His laws. It's not going to be external. It's going to be internal. It's not that we're going to have these external requirements to follow God. Rather, He's going to give us an internal delight of our souls. We're going to pursue God not out of obligation, but because we love Him. It's what being born again means. He's changed us and transformed us. Desires we've never had before because God transforms us, puts a, a new heart within us. We want nothing more than to obey our Lord. It's a great passage, a great verse, and we go on and on, but really that's not so much even the point of this text. It's just setting the context. It's saying, okay, listen, I'm... I'm quoting from the New Covenant. Remember when God said, I'm going to put my law upon your heart and on your mind, I'm going to write them? He then says, and he's skipping two or three verses because he's getting to the point. 
He then says, and this is the point, verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. It's the culminating promise of the new covenant for divine forgiveness. God forgets our sins. That is, He will never bring them up again as a charge against us. Never, ever, ever, because He will remember our sins no more. To know this frees your conscience. I'm released. (laughs) I'm forgiven. And you can walk about in your way. But He ties it now in verse 18. And here's where it might be an aha moment for you. It was for me as I studied through Hebrews 10. It's what stirred my heart. It goes back to the, the Old Covenant. It says, okay, now think about this. Where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. See, because if God has forgotten your sin, there's no longer any need to make an additional sacrifice for your sins. Right? Do you see it? And that's the whole point of what he's saying. The only reason the Jews needed to offer sacrifice was because of the problem of their sin. They sinned against God. And the only way to forgive those was through the sacrifice. But when God says, here's what's coming in the New Covenant, which was inaugurated in the Messiah, I'm going to remember your sins no more. And if God's going to remember our sins no more, there's no longer need for a sacrifice. And how's He going to do that? Through the single sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The single sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient. And I just trust that you with me will rejoice in that fact. And really, there's no better way to reflect upon this, to rejoice in this, than to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Right? To do what He's called us to do. God has told us, Jesus told us, the night was betrayed, He says, remember me until I come. Right? And take this bread and break it and distribute it and eat it. And take this cup and distribute it and drink it. Because I want you to remember my sacrifice for your sins. And that's what we're going to do here. I'm going to invite the men to come up and uh, begin to distribute the elements. Those in the worship, why don't you come up now even before I, I pray. You know, we do the Lord's Supper, celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, kind of there's no real pattern to it. I try to identify times when texts are really apparent to us. And there's no greater text than right here. The remembrance of sins, no more because we need to remember the single sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I just want to also mention, just if there's, there's harbored sin in your heart, if you're not knowing anything about being sanctified, um, then don't take this. This isn't for you. Or better yet, even confess it. That's better. Um, but if you are walking with Christ, trusting Him, even if you're saying, Christ, I, I believe these things help my unbelief, or I'm weak, I need your help. Boy, that's, that's the kind of person that ought to take celebrate the Lord's Supper. Those who just say that I'm trusting in your sacrifice. I don't really fully understand everything that means. I know that for me, I don't understand fully all the implications of that in my life. So I preach the gospel to myself every day. I, I learn more and more. But we need to continue to grow in that. As we grow in that, this celebrating the Supper is just a, an acknowledgement. God, that's what I need. It's like any time we read our Bible or go to church... We ought not to say, oh God, look at how good this was for you. Shouldn't it balance my sins? Rather, we should say, God, the very fact I read your word this morning is an indication of my need and dependence upon you. My church attendance is merely an indication of my need and dependence upon you. 
And so also celebrating the Lord's Supper is an indication of my need and dependence upon you. And that's why we celebrate. So let me pray and we have some Christ-centered songs to sing and we'll pass around the, the bread and the cup. Oh Lord, I do thank You for the, the finished work of Christ. That His sacrifice was sufficient. It was a better sacrifice than all the Old Covenant sacrifices. Thank You that it cleansed heaven for us as we saw last week. Um, thank You that it, it brings us to God as Jesus is the mediator. That in the shedding of blood there is forgiveness of sins. It's through Christ that it is. That the redemption comes through this blood. Thank You that we have eternal redemption. And Lord, I pray You'd help us even now in our hearts and our spirits and our minds to really think of You and to direct our hearts upon You as the sole source for our forgiveness. You are the way and You are the truth and You are the life. And there's no other way that we can seek to be saved but through this one happening that has brought salvation through the world and through Him for all time. So I pray You'd Help us now, God, to commune with You and to worship You as the Savior of our souls. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.